Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. I love worshiping with you guys. Can I tell you that before we get started? Like, it was, I know you're not supposed to watch people worship, right? I'm supposed to close my eyes and I realized I got a problem with that. Like, I watched the sunrise yesterday morning. I went down to Surfside and sat on the beach and watched it come up over the horizon. And I set my phone on a lifeguard stand to video it. And while my phone was videoing the sunrise, I was watching everybody else on the beach watch the sunrise because I love seeing their reaction. It's like, I'll watch the video later of the actual sunrise. I want to see you see the sunrise. But sometimes it feels like that in worship where I'm like, oh, boy. Just watching you guys worship our Savior, it's, it's special. In, um, in ancient Jewish wedding tradition, around the time a young girl would become old enough to start thinking about getting married, her father would begin entertaining offers for her hand in marriage. The parents of different potential suitors would come meet with this young lady's father and they would begin making cases why their son should be her husband. And also along with this, they would offer a dowry. The father would listen and listen, and when the young lady's father heard an offer that he thought was acceptable, when he met a young man he thought he also liked, one that he thought would be suitable for his daughter, the parents on both sides would arrange for the two to meet. A banquet would be organized. They'd shake hands. They'd, they'd, they'd spit on their hands, maybe. The friends, families, others would be invited to this festivity, a giant party, a banquet. They'd be invited to be part of this moving occasion. However, the two weren't yet engaged. That hadn't actually happened. They likely hadn't even met. The preparations would be made, a party would be planned, a big tent would be ordered for the festivity, celebration, food, wine, a live band would be hired, all the people. And the young man that night as he arrived would be looking around, hoping to catch a glimpse of his potential fiance. The young lady, of course, too, giggling with her friends, would be looking around, hoping to catch sight of her potential future husband. At some point in the evening, the music would lower. The lights would go dark. A spotlight would come to rest on the two of them as they stood eyeball to eyeball with each other. And the young man would extend to her a glass. This is a powerful moment. Every eye in the place is on them. Everyone's watching. Very romantic. The scene from some special romantic movie and there's a lot of pressure for the young lady he's offering her a glass and if she drinks from it then she would go back to her mother's house and she would begin learning how to be a wife she would be accepting his proposal this would be the point at which they would be technically engaged if she drinks from the glass then after this night she goes back to her mother's house she begins learning the household chores she keeps her bags packed ready to go because she never knows when he's going to come and get her they're not married at this point they're only engaged and she would keep a lamp lit 
in the window to aid him in his search, to aid him in his pursuit of her if she drinks of this glass. If she drinks of this glass, he would go back to his father's house, and he would begin adding on to that house a room where the two of them could live. Homes in this day and age existed as these structures with continued add-ons from generation to generation called insulas. They would add a room on as each family member took a bride. And he would begin working on the house, hoping that his father would tell him when it was time to go and get his bride. He didn't know when. The, the father would routinely come down and inspect. He'd kick the walls. He'd check the plumbing. He'd make sure things were right because he wanted his daughter-in-law to be taken care of. And so son is working, hoping, wondering when his father is going to say, go get your bride. But they're not engaged yet. So back to the banquet. The music stops. The lights dim. All eyes are on them. And he extends to her a glass. Now this is it's a lot of pressure, but it's also quite progressive. All the power rests on her. She could say no, and he's well aware of it. She could decline the glass. If she turns him down, the whole thing is off. The party's over. Everyone embarrassedly acts like it never happened. Talk about awkward. But if she drinks of the glass, then it's on. If she drinks of the glass, this young man would drop to a knee and he would recite to her a speech that he had heard given dozens, maybe hundreds of times simply by nature of growing up in that culture. If she drinks of the glass, he would drop to a knee and with that spotlight on him, he would say, my father's house has many rooms. I go now to prepare one for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, then certainly I will come back to take you where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Some of you recognize those words. We find this is the speech that Jesus drew from when wanting to comfort his disciples, when he sensed that they were frightened at the thought of his death, his impending death on the cross. He encouraged their hearts with familiar words they would have heard dozens of times. We find this cup to be so important as a symbol in the new work Christ is doing, the cup of communion, which is so intricately tied not only to weddings, but to our faith itself. We find the metaphor of the wedding to be all over the New Testament, a, a description of our relationship to Jesus as the church. We are his church. We are engaged to him, betrothed to him, waiting for him to come back. He doesn't know the day or the hour. The Son of Man does not know the day or the hour when he will return. So he's busy making the preparations, and we're to be busy making ours, keeping that lamp lit in the window, waiting for him to... We are engaged, but not yet consummated. We are already, but not yet. We are the people of the in-between, and he, he's our bridegroom, and as our bridegroom, we are to be faithful to him, listening to him, loyal to him, 
waiting eagerly, patiently, anticipating his arrival and never losing our faith in him. As our bridegroom, he is responsible for us. He's responsible for our well-being, our health, our fidelity to him. He is our defender. That is the language we find in these letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. If this is your first Sunday with us, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Revelation. It's perhaps the easiest book of the Bible to find. It's the last one, and we're two chapters in. We've been looking at a study these last several weeks on these letters that appear there in chapters 2 and 3. We said several weeks ago that John the Apostle is an old man, and he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. This is the context for what we're reading. And there on the island, the risen Lord Jesus comes to visit him. And he says to John, I want you to write some stuff down. I got a few things to say to these churches, these churches that I care so passionately about. That is my bride. And I want to I instruct her on, on things that she's doing well and things that she needs to be doing better. And we're reading one of those this morning in, in a letter that is addressed to the church and Thyatira. Uh, Jesus' letter to the church there appears in verses 18 through 29. It is the longest of all his letters to the churches, which is ironic because it's also the smallest church that receives a letter. So smallest church receives the longest letter. That tells me there's something going on at this church in Thyatira that made it deserving of such length. Jesus is sensing As the husband or the bridegroom of this church, he is sensing a threat in Thyatira that he takes very seriously. We're going to see that in the language that he uses in this letter. It's heavy, y'all. All week I'm going, so no jokes, God, this week? Like, I can't make jokes? Like, it's heavy. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. Verse 18, Jesus writes, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, I forgot to say this, we'll put the addresses on the screen. We seldom put the actual verses there because we want to learn to use the book. So if you didn't bring one with you, you raise your hand. We got so many, we can give them out. If you don't own one, you can keep it, put your name in it. We'd be happy for you to own it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You can tell, by the way, just by this introduction, right, that he's got something to say. This this is heavy. We we said in the early weeks of this study that the the way Jesus refers to himself in these letters reveals to us what he's writing about. In each letter, there's a formula. He begins by addressing who the letter is to, who it is that is writing the letter, and the way that he references himself in that description of himself tells us the topic that he's going to be addressing in them, right? What they're doing well is the next portion that he goes on to, and then what they need to correct. He gives them a promise. If they correct it, then a final greeting. And in this letter, the way he refers to himself, you see it there. He says, the Son of God is what he calls himself whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What an interesting introduction. Did you know, nowhere in the book of Revelation does the phrase Son of God exist. This is the only place. 
More, at no point in any of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, does Jesus ever call himself the Son of God. When the expression is used, it's always other people referring to him that way. It's a powerful expression, so closely associated with him today, we use it all the time. But when you look at the scriptures, it's really rare. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus never calls himself that. Book of Revelation, the phrase is used once, and it's right here by him. So why use it here? Jesus is describing himself with a title that emphasizes his deity. In Jewish thought, to be the son of something meant you had the nature of that thing. So the son of God has divine nature. He has the nature of God. He's by nature God. He's saying, I have authority. I want you to recognize who you're talking to, the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. Is that not intimidating? Jesus chose this description of himself to emphasize the idea that his eyes look with penetrating judgment. Fire is so often used to describe purity or purification He's going, okay, I'm the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like fine brass. He says this to emphasize his purity because brass is pure and highly refined in fire. It also emphasizes his steadfastness because brass was the strongest metal known in the ancient world. And so feet like fine brass would be strong and unmovable. It's, it's as if he's starting the letter by going, I want you to recognize who's writing to you. I'm in charge. I'm Jesus. I have authority. I see all. I judge all. I'm immovable and fixed. And if you're like me, you brace What's he about to say? That's a strong intro. And whatever is coming after this is going to be truth. It's going to be unbending, unfiltered, unadulterated. He's making no bones about this. This is black and white truth. And if, again, if you're like me, I kind of appreciate that. Don't you, when you read these letters, it's like, okay, there's some stuff that Jesus is really clear about in these letters. Thank God. Because so much of our world is like we're guessing. Have you ever noticed that? We guess things about God. We enjoy guessing what he likes, what he says, how he feels about certain things. It's become so synonymous with our culture, with the days that we're living in, which is amazing. Because some of the things we guess that he would be okay with are just things that we happen to be okay with too, Right? And so it's kind of convenient because, man, if he was against that stuff, then we might have to surrender it or lay it down. And so we kind of go, well, I feel like God's okay with this, right? I feel like, and we kind of we go, well, I, I haven't looked to see what he actually says. And the thing about these letters is we don't have to guess. There's some stuff that he's very clear about. We don't have to kind of go off of our feelings. We don't have to guess about it. On our church's website, it says, um, Jay Elkins is our spiritual life path. You guys saw Jay up here a minute ago. I think he's, yeah, he's in the back of the room there, Jay. This says on our website, because we've been pushing, we've been working on the website and the app and all that stuff that you just heard about. It says, Jay Elkins is our spiritual life pastor. Jay, is that true? Is that your title? Yeah. Are you sure? Because, well, I know that it says that that's true. 
but I actually don't think or feel like it's true. Like, I feel like you're actually the worship arts pastor. Right? Do you play an instrument? I feel like you do. <laughs> like, I feel like you play the pipe organ. Yeah. <laughs> it says on the website, Jay is husband to Amy and has two quirky children. Is that true? I feel like you're single. <laughs> don't we do that to God all the time? God has already said all throughout his book, this is what I like and what I don't like, especially in these letters. And Jesus is so clear sometimes in these letters. Like, it's just black and white. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. And we have people all over the world kind of going, well, I know he says that, but I don't think a loving God actually cares about that, right? I don't feel like a loving God would actually be that angry about it. Yeah, I know he hates sin, but I don't think my particular situation is what he had in mind when he said that. I mean, I don't know, it sounds like it was. Yeah, well, I know Jesus says that he doesn't want us to cheat, right? But he knows how unimportant this class is anyway, so he wouldn't care if I cheat a little bit right now. And it's like, I mean, I don't, it seems pretty black and white. I don't think God really cares if I smoke pot. He created it, right? I don't think, I feel, I, and we do this all the time. And sometimes he's told us the exact opposite. And when he's told us the exact opposite, you kind of want to go, I don't really care about your feelings, like, Jay got to a point a moment ago where I'm like, I feel like you don't have kids. And he's like, you can feel like that. Like, it's still, like, I, I see them. Like, they're, they're here. I think sometimes, like, just opening this book requires a humility of us coming to it and kneeling and go, okay, I don't care about what I feel right now. I don't care about what I think right now. What you say is so much more important to me. And wherever my feelings come into conflict with your commands or your teachings, I need to say, okay, I don't get it, but I trust you. And I love you too much to treat this trivially. That's why we're coming to these letters. That's why we read them. Jesus tells us exactly what he likes and what, exactly what he doesn't like in these churches. And this week, I, I found myself, if I'm completely honest with you, just being completely transparent, I struggled with writing this message only because there's not a lot to say. It, it's pretty straightforward. I don't know what else to do other than just read to you the letter that we had read at the beginning of this service today, which is so strong and so black and white and so many Ways. I don't mean to necessarily discourage the art of preaching. I think the scriptures are clear about what preaching is supposed to be. My job when I get up here, I take it seriously, is to encourage, to admonish, to challenge, to warn, to comfort the afflicted, afflict the comforted. The Bible is very clear about what this role involves, right? But also, like, I can't say anything different than what he says. Like, I can't dress it up. It's pretty straightforward, it's explicit. It's clear. And when we act trivially, trivially about things that he says, it's like we're forgetting who he is. And G that's why he starts this letter. Listen to the, okay, so the serious tone with which he starts this letter. The son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet 
are like burnished bronze. Does this sound like he's messing around? This, I mean, this sounds serious. Remember, he's defending his bride. That's why this is so important. Though she's still here, we're still here. We're waiting on him to come back and get us, but we are still his, and he is responsible for us, and he takes that very seriously. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Thyatira was the least significant city in the seven cities Jesus writes letters to. Yet they were not hidden to Jesus. Like every one of these other churches, he goes, I know your works. I know your love. I know your service, your faith, your patience. In many ways, this church is a model church. They had great essential qualities. They had love for the Lord, for one another. They had service, faith, patience. As for your works, he says, the last are more than the first. This is another compliment. Not only did they have works, but they had them in increasing measure. They were growing in love, growing in service, faith, and patience. I look at this church at Thyatira, and I go, man, that sounds like a great church. It seems like if we stop there, they should get an A+. But sadly, it doesn't stop there. There's a criticism, a scathing rebuke by Jesus that basically flunks this church. It's heavy dangerous language. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have this against you. Wouldn't you just love to stop right before the nevertheless? I bet if you're in this church and you're receiving this letter, you're like feeling pretty good, and then he gets to the nevertheless, and you're like, oh no. Can we just stop at verse 18? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. This is heavy. Sadly, this church in Thyatira had, if you can believe this, too much love. Which is actually not love at all, which I'll argue in just a second. But Ephesus, another letter that we've talked about, it was strong in doctrine, but it had no love. Thyatira is strong in love, but weak in doctrine. They weren't willing to disagree with anybody. They weren't willing to hold anybody to truth. They just wanted to love everyone. Everybody gets to be right. Everything's acceptable, right? The center of the corruption at the church at Thyatira was a woman Jesus calls Jezebel. Probably not her real name. Clearly a title that is used to represent a self-styled prophetess within the church after the pattern of the Old Testament Jezebel. You guys remember Jezebel? Right, she's the reason we don't name kids Jezebel today. Like, no moms go, that's going to be a good name for my girl. There's certain names that over the years were just like, you know what, I think we're just going to, you know, Adolf is one of them, you know, Brutus, Judas. Like, there's certain names that we just retire for awful reasons. We're like, nobody wants to name their kid that. She's one of the most evil characters in the Old Testament. She attempted to combine the worship of Israel's God, Yahweh, with the worship of the idol, Baal. Terrible God. She's a Phoenician royal whose identity and name have come to signify a power-hungry, violent, promiscuous woman. A follower of Baal, she threatens to kill Elijah, who after hearing this, runs. She manipulates powerful men around her. She arranges the deaths of several leaders. She's ultimately murdered by palace officials and is referenced consistently in the Bible as the epitome of evil. 
And Jesus goes, you got one of those in my church. Leading people. She's not only in my church, you've given her authority, you've given her influence, and she is misleading my bride. That's egregious. By her, verse 20, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So this immoral person is an ungodly influence on others, and she's leading others into sin. Jezebel led others into immorality and idolatry, and so is this woman. This city is well known for diverse occupations, a strong economy, which meant it was subject to trade guilds. If you wanted to find a place to work, Thyatira was the place to go. Small city, but incredible wealth, incredible prosperity. And to get connected there, one would have to start by going to one of these trade guilds, basically like a job fair. The situation with these trades guilds uh, was if you wanted to get ahead in the world, you had to belong to one of these guilds. If you belonged to one of these guilds, then your membership implied you worshipped its God. You would be expected to attend the guild, to attend their festivities, to eat the food there, which was openly offered to false deities and which you would receive on your table as a gift from that God. And then when the feast would end, that's when the really grossly sexually immoral fun would begin. And one couldn't walk out unless he or she desired to become the object of ridicule and persecution. This was an incredible dilemma placed before the Christians living in this city. If they didn't follow the rules of the guild, they'd be cast out without any chance of earning a living, which would lead to the eventual hunger and starvation of not only them, but their families. The other alternative was to continue participating, in which case you're pledging allegiance to a false god and moving towards sexual Immorality. This is the kind of accommodation that Ahab made when he married Jezebel in the first place. Christians were faced with an ultimatum which would affect all those that they held dear. And the solution to this problem was found by a lady who claimed to speak for God. This teacher calls herself a prophetess while the Lord called her Jezebel. She is misleading my servants, he says. This is no joke. This is serious. This is egregious. You're messing, Jesus says, with my bride. And that's a big deal. Verse 21. This is heavy language. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Does, does it sound like Jesus is indifferent towards sin? Does it sound like Jesus is okay with this woman and what she's teaching? Does he seem casual? about sexuality or immorality? Is it, as someone who loves you, we live in a culture that would depict Jesus as just kind of meh about all that stuff. You know, to each his own. A loving God would never. And then I read this and I go, oh, 
I mean, that's some of the most intense language that I see in the New Testament. He says, in my grace, I've given her time to repent. In my mercy, I'm giving her time to repent. But in my justice, I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering. And we see both mercy and judgment. This is an unpopular view of Jesus. But isn't it why he starts the letter by going, let me remind you who you're talking to. There's a son of God on the line here whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like bronze. Before I tell the Christians in Thyatira what they must do, I want to first tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast her into a sickbed along with those who commit adultery with her. This reference to adultery is important. His use of beds here is important. He's using language. It's a metaphor. It speaks of sexual adultery, but also spiritual adultery. He says, when you honor other gods, you're being unfaithful to the Lord who saved you. When these Christians honored other gods in the area of their sexuality, they're being unfaithful to the Lord who saved them. For this reason, the figure of a sickbed is fitting. They were guilty of adultery, both sexual and spiritual. It's as if Jesus said, you seem to love an unclean bed, so here I'm going to give you one. I'm going to cast you into it. What's the sickbed? It could be just the image of affliction or a literal sickness that Jesus is going to allow in the lives of Jezebel and her followers as chastisement. So we've got these members of trades guilds, right, job fairs who go into them and engage in some perverse sexual behaviors, and a prophetess rises up and goes, actually, God's cool with it. Go ahead. It's fine. And something Jesus considers so pure and so sacred, the area of our sexuality, has been treated with triviality. And as the husband of the bride, he goes, I am not okay with that. In fact, it makes me very angry. And I read this today and I go, could anything be closer to where we live today? As believers, as the church, we're being taught all sorts of things in regards to our sexuality. That it's an appetite, so you're free to feed it. If there's no victim, there's no sin, that you can pick for yourself how you engage with your sexuality, and on and on and on. It's such a foggy new world we live in. It's actually news now, news. When Christian and Bible-believing ministries and businesses say they affirm a biblical view of marriage, it gets twisted to mean that we hate people, and we call it tolerance. We call it progressivism. And this church was not influenced by it. This church was advocating it. Look how progressive we are. Look how tolerant we are. And Jesus gets really upset about it. Now, I want to be clear. Gatherings, churches, groups, we want everyone to be a part of this here what we're doing here. We're studying these letters to know how to be the church in Myrtle Beach, right? We want, if you're searching, if you're lost, if you're confused, be all those things here. We want you here. The difference is not that the confused or lost or searching were attending. The problem with this church is that they were being put in vocal, influential positions and advocating for things that were clearly marked off as wrong. 
And Jesus goes, I'm not okay with that. And just to be clear, the church has done a horrible job with this. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. I want to be clear about this. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? So many Christians look around at the culture around us, and we judge it. We long for God to send fire from heaven and strike people who don't believe what we do, that don't live the way we do, that don't engage with the world around us the same way we do. We look at the world, we shake our heads, especially in the area of sexuality, all the crazy, wacky, strange, salacious beliefs that are espoused by the world in this area. We shake our heads and we point our fingers, but listen very clearly clearly what Jesus is angry about with this church was not the culture it's here he's angry at the church because his bride had not only been influenced by these things she was now mistakenly brainwashed into advocating for them that's what makes Jesus angry judgment begins in God's household judgment begins in the church we look around and we go okay We've got to make sure that we got our stuff in order, right? We got to, as leaders of the influencers or whatever we might be in regards to our leadership of this church, like we got to make sure our stuff is in order. Those of us who attend this church, who are here, who have surrendered their lives to Christ and are living on mission for him, our job isn't to judge the world. Jesus doesn't write this letter about the world. Jesus writes this letter about here. He goes, that's a problem. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so we look at this letter and we look around and go, okay, whew, no one here is involved in orgies. Oh. Relief. No one here is part of a trade guild. No pagan worship. We're good. What strikes me is that the believers in Thyatira were likely not going and participating in this stuff. But maybe they were just going and watching. And we call that the internet. We shake our fingers at the world, but according to Barna research and more recent stats, 70% of church-going men regularly view porn. 70% of those who follow Jesus. And when it comes to Christians ages 18 to 24, 80% actively search for porn. And Jesus goes, I made that bed for the wedding, for something sacred, and you're forfeiting that for something gross. You're not participating, but you're watching. How is that any different? Quit looking at the world. Quit shaking your head and your finger. Judgment starts in the house of the Lord. We got to make sure our lives are above reproach. Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those of you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, which were probably things that she was saying were teachings that she was teaching. I will not impose any other burden on you except hold on to what you have until I come. Isn't that a helpful command? Just be faithful. Sounds like there were many faithful, uncompromising Christians in Thyatira, and to them, Jesus goes, just, just hold fast. 
Don't stop doing what's right. Don't become distracted or discouraged. Just hold fast till I come. We're told to hang in there and stand strong for Jesus until he comes, even if that means risking persecution, which it did for these believers. Jesus goes, I'm going to come back, and then the battle will be over. To the one who's victorious, verse 26, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Isn't that beautiful? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even when there is a moral and idolatrous influence of a Jezebel, Christians, Jesus says, can overcome and keep his words till the end. We can stay strong to not be overly discouraged at the immorality and idolatry around us, even among Christians. God's work will still go on through his overcomers. He says, I'll give them power over the nations. He promises that people will reign with him. Here, there's a special promise to those who overcome the threat of immorality and idolatry. To them, Jesus offers a share in his own kingdom. Jesus also offers a greater reward than just the kingdom. You see that. He offers them the reward of himself because he is the morning star. So how does a church that is solid suddenly become tolerant of heresy and of sin? It seems like it's always sudden. Or is it? Isn't it a bit more subtle? I mean, we're growing up in a culture that embraces fogginess. What is this fogginess? Some call it postmodernism, this teaching that you can't really know anything for sure, that truth changes, and as long as you believe something personally enough, then it's true for you. In other words, there's no absolute right and wrong. And if you can't allow me to believe what I believe, then you are a racist or a bigot and you're intolerant. Openness and the relativism that makes it only plausible stands in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and various human beings and is a great insight of our times. True believers are in real danger because we, if you claim to hold true to something that seems unchanging, You're seen as closed-minded. The study of history and of culture teaches that all the world was crazy in the past. People always thought they were right. And that led to wars, to persecutions, to slavery, to xenophobia, racism, chauvinism. The point isn't to correct past mistakes and really be right, but instead to swear off truth altogether, and there is no right. I've heard the same idea echoed in a million and one college dorms. Starbucks, news reports, community groups. It's the issue of absolute truth and of tolerance, but a new definition of tolerance, which is everyone's right. But for us, for us, it's not to judge culture. We have to desire to please Jesus and not fit in with the culture around us. To go, okay, God, I don't care what I think I don't care what I feel. That'd be just as foolish as me going, well, Jay, I know what it says, but I think this is true, right? And Jay's like, all right, whatever. Like, I don't, that's not even worth responding to. 
Like as Christians, we're called to go, okay, Jesus, I desire to please you. And I'm gonna live, okay, whatever this says, I'm gonna bring my life in alignment beneath it, even if that means risking persecution, which it did for these believers. But I'm never gonna say, judgment starts in the house of the Lord. Like these instructions are for me. And so Jesus, I wanna desire to please you and not fit in with the culture around me. So Jesus, give us ears to hear what you say today, to remain true to what you say, not just our views, our opinions, but our practices. You guys, it doesn't matter if we say that we believe certain things if our lives are not showing it. Judgment starts in the house of God. May we be a people who bring our lives into alignment beneath what he says and not what we feel. Who don't shout and argue our views and our opinions, but not our practices. May we be a people, as Jesus says, who hold true in every area, the places people see and where they don't see. So Lord Jesus, this is a hard teaching but especially relevant. As we examine your words in these letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, we continually ask the question, what does this mean for us? And how we live this out here in Myrtle Beach. Jesus, would you show us the places where we've allowed our feelings or our thinking to usurp what you say? Can you show us the places where our lives are out of alignment between what we say we believe and how we live? Would you help us to be careful? Friends, in this time, as I was praying this week about this message, kept asking for ways to make it lighter. It's not a light message. Sometimes the job of a communicator is to just say what it says and then sit down. But I did begin thinking as we examine how to be this church in Myrtle Beach. As we close out the service, there's a number of ways to respond before we rush back out into that maddening world. Jesus prays for us. That the Spirit would search us, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says. So I'd like to take just a minute to do that before the noise, before the rush. Just give the Spirit an opportunity to speak. It's gonna require ears on our part. And as we do that, there's just, there's different ways around the room that you're familiar with likely if you've been here for long. If you're new, I'll point them out. 
there's ways around the room to connect with whatever the Lord might be saying to you. Lots of people love to come up here and light candles in regards to things they're praying about. It's just movement connected to their soul's longing. There's nothing special or magical about these candles. This gives us a tangible way to lay something down. You can do that in this time. There's kneelers up here where you can come and just lay your request before the Lord. If he's convicted you of something, you can lay that down here too. You don't have to. You can do it right from your seat. You can reach around to the folks near you in those seats and pray together as a group. Pray individually. There's cards on the back of the seat in front of you where you can let us know how to pray for you. You can jot that down in this time. Then as we leave, there's a box between the doors on your way out. You can drop that in there. We take that very seriously. In a moment, after a moment, we'll join our voices together for a song. And someone will pray over us, and at that amen, you are free to go. If it's your first time worshiping with us, we've enjoyed worshiping with you and hope to see you again soon. At that amen, if you're ready to take off, please feel free. But if after the amen, the Lord is still ministering in your heart, there's no rush. All that stuff out there can wait. Just sink into this moment. Lord Jesus, would you reveal to us areas where we've elevated our feelings above what you say? Would you show us where we can be more consistent between what we say, what we believe, and how we live? For everyone, I'd like to ask you to pray for our church. These are challenging times. We want to make sure we always have a clarity around what the Lord says as we follow him. Take this time now. Amen. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.